So this past week, my son Caleb had his senior recital at Central Baptist College where he is a music education major. And um, a senior recital is kind of like the major project of a degree program. And so this is something that he's been preparing for for several years, learning different songs and so forth. And uh, at this recital, he sang 15 songs. Uh, seven of them were classical art songs. Uh, there were two in Italian, two in French, and three in German. And, um, uh, you know, Brother George kept saying, uh, I didn't understand those first ones. He needs to work on that, but, you know. Um, anyway. And then the last eight songs that he did were all musical theater songs. And uh, the way that my son put it together, which I, I thought was kind of brilliant, he did eight songs that were sung, or sorry, four songs sung by villains and then four songs sung by heroes. And so he had a lot of fun doing it. And um, I will shamelessly be putting some of those on YouTube in the uh, near future. And so you can follow links off of my Facebook page and watch those. They are entertaining. And so I would encourage you to do that. But for his villain songs, that, that set of four songs that were from, from villains, he sang songs from Beauty and the Beast. He was Gaston in that one. Um, and the, the funniest thing about that was uh, there's a part of the song where he talks about bringing up strapping young boys that are six foot four. And he, he put his hand like right here and the teacher kept telling him, no, you need to have it higher. He said, but I'm six foot five. <laughs> and so anyway, but he's saying, that song uh, from Beauty and the Beast. He also was the big bad wolf from the musical Into the Woods, which that song is a little disturbing. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that, but it was, it was fun as well. Then he sang a song from Jekyll and Hyde where he was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And he had a conversation with himself uh, in this. And I told him I was amazed that he didn't get mixed up which one he was doing and he said oh I actually did get it mixed up one time and I said well I didn't notice he said well I changed the lyrics in the middle of the song to make it fit and I was like impressive <laughs> um, but then he also did one song from a musical about some Yankees if you know what I'm talking about and and the the song he sang from that was a song called the good old days um, and that song in the musical is sung by Mr. Applegate. And Mr. Applegate um, is basically uh, the devil in the flesh. Um, and so the devil is singing this song about the good old days, reminiscing about all of the atrocious events that happened in human history. He sang about Napoleon Bonaparte and Emperor Nero and Queen Antoinette and all of these things, you know, even referring to Jack the Ripper and talking about how, oh, those were the, the good old days. Um, you know, if you think about it, there really have been some truly evil people who have sought to wreak havoc in the world uh, throughout our history. And the thing about these evil people is that Satan has enjoyed 
every minute of what they were doing. Well, in the wake of World War II and the turmoil caused by evil men such as Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini, the National Party in South Africa implemented a system of government called apartheid. Apartheid was basically an institutionalized racial segregation and discrimination. There was a man named Nelson Mandela who was a prominent South African anti-apartheid revolutionary. And because of his work in that uh, revolution against apartheid, he spent 27 years in prison for his involvement. Now, when he was finally released in 1990, Nelson Mandela did something that was unlike anything anyone expected. You see, he chose a path of reconciliation rather than revenge. He worked towards dismantling the apartheid system and fostering a, a unity in their nation. Mandela's willingness to forgive his oppressors and to work towards reconciliation was a crucial factor in South Africa's transition to a post-apartheid era. It, an era, by the way, which he was elected as the president of South Africa just four years later in 1994. Nelson Mandela's approach to forgive, forgiveness and reconciliation played a significant role in the healing of a deeply divided nation. What Nelson Mandela accomplished in the 1990s in South Africa is an illustration of what Paul was trying to teach us at the end of Romans chapter 12. You see, in verse 21, Paul concludes this chapter by saying, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now this verse, verse 21, uh, serves like a bookend to this section. You see, in this section, Paul started by encouraging us to love genuinely. genuinely. He said, let your love be genuine or authentic. And then he finishes the section by urging us to overcome evil with good. The verses in between, verse 9 and 21, these verses in between explain how we are to do this. We've talked for the last several weeks uh, about how we should be authentic in our love, how we ought to let our love be genuine and what that looks like. And so now as we move forward in this passage on to the next paragraph uh, in our text, we'll be given a picture of what it looks like to overcome evil with good. So in the same way that we read the entire paragraph uh, as we studied the subsections each week in verses 9 through 13, we're going to do that as well as we finish out the uh, book of, or chapter 12 of the book of Romans. We're going to read this paragraph each week and we'll study some small subsections of it. Our focus today is going to be on verses 14 and 15 as we think about the topic, therefore, be 
considerate. Therefore, be considerate. We're going to see how in these verses that a godly response to others will always be considerate of their perspective as well as we must be considerate of their eternal destiny. Because more than anything, folks, we do not want our response to someone, our poor response to someone, be the reason that they reject Christ. Therefore, we must be considerate in all our dealings with people. So let's read, starting in verse 14, Romans chapter 12. The Bible says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As we look at this, I think it's important for us to consider, first of all, just for a few minutes, what he means here in verse 21 when he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The first thing that we notice this morning is that overcoming evil cannot be passive. It cannot be a passive thing that we just, oh, um, we're going to overcome evil. No, it must be an aggressive. We're going to contend against evil. We're going to fight against evil and overcome so what does it mean to overcome evil? Well, evil has both a general meaning as well as a specific meaning. You know, in the model prayer, Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 prayed, And Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some translations, it's about half and half. Some will say deliver us from evil. Others say deliver us from the evil one. You see, the work of Satan in the world today is the manifestation of evil in the world. So when, he, when Jesus said, and deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one, he's saying, Lord, help us to overcome evil. But here in Romans chapter 12, J. Adams notes that the evil in view here is not some general evil that happens to exist in the world. But rather, it is evil oriented toward you. The evil we're talking about here in Romans chapter 12 is specifically evil that is directed toward 
you as an individual. He goes on, he said, it is the suffering that you must endure that is inflicted by some other person. It is is motivated, as is all wrongdoing, by the evil one whose intention is to thwart God's purposes by tempting you to sin. The evil that we're talking about here is evil that is specific to your situation and your life. It it refers specifically to temptations and trials and persecutions and difficulties that you face personally on a day-by-day basis. And so to overcome evil, to overcome these things that we're dealing with personally day-by-day, it means that we must go to war against it. Because that word overcome is a war word. You see, the term is used to describe a defeat. To be overcome means that you lose the battle. You're defeated in battle. But to overcome, on the other hand, is to defeat the enemy. It is a word that specifically invokes this idea of war or battle. And folks, too many times in a Christian's life, we are content with brokering a peace agreement with the enemy rather than going to war. We're content to to have some sort of armistice instead of a complete annihilation of the evil that exists in our lives. Adams continues, he says, you are in a war. And evil must not win. It is one thing not to lose. It is another thing to actually win. He said, you cannot draw a line on the 39th parallel and settle down on your side. Now, some of you have no idea what that's referring to. Uh, if, If you don't, that means you're probably younger than me. Um, and uh, you didn't listen in American history, but that's okay. Um, There are two countries in East Asia called North Korea and South Korea, and they are divided by the 39th parallel. And the reason that there is that division there is back in the 50s as we were helping uh, South Korea fight against the North Koreans, we settled, and they settled. And then there became this DMZ, the demilitarized zone, where it is filled with landmines and you cannot cross. And it's, it, but the point is, they decided that nobody was going to win the war. And so they settled. Folks, that's not what God wants for us. He does not want us to just settle. He wants us... To completely and totally annihilate evil in our lives. If we decide to settle, we can be sure of two things. Number one, the enemy will break the truce that we think we have brokered. And number two, the Lord will be disappointed in us. Because folks, he told us 
to win the battle. He told us to overcome the enemy. He told us to not stop fighting. Yet Christians are forever trying to arrange ceasefires with Satan. We cannot compromise when it comes to sin. We must eradicate it from our lives. We must overcome sin, not accommodate sin. Now, some may argue that the idea of Christians going to war doesn't sound very Christian, right? Um, they they w- might say, well, doesn't Jesus teach us that we should turn the other cheek? Yes, he does. But to understand that as not going to war against evil is a misinterpretation of what Jesus was teaching there. You see, the false interpretation of turning the other cheek is an interpretation that equates action with defeatism or doormatism. Have you ever heard that word before? That was a new one for me. I'm quoting from from one commentator saying, doormatism, meaning all I can do is lie here and invite you to wipe your muddy boots on top of me. Is that what God and Jesus Christ calls us to do in living our life for him? He doesn't want us to be defeated. He doesn't want us to be a doormat. He does not want us to be a pacifist or a non-aggressionist. But we must represent Christ by fighting for the truth of God's word. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching his followers to resist temptation to retaliate against a person who mistreats them. And that's when he says to turn the other cheek. Do not retaliate. Well, Paul says basically the same thing, and we're going to get to it. We read it earlier when he says, do not avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. So that's what we're talking about when he says, turn the other cheek. He's talking about our relationship with other people. But folks, the war against evil is not a battle against other individual human beings. The war against people is a battle in the spiritual realm. The war which in which we are engaged is not against people, it is against spiritual powers. And it's against the desires of our flesh. That's where the real battle against sin and evil lies. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. Paul is writing about this. And remember, we must understand a text within its context, right? So if, the, if we're looking at Romans 12, then the next larger context is this book of Romans. So what does he say here about the war that's going on inside of us? Well, reading from sections of that passage, it's, Paul wrote, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. He goes on and says, So... I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 
For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He said there is a war going on inside of me because the spirit that lives in me is at war with the flesh. We must overcome evil with good. My flesh is evil. The desires of my flesh are sinful. So there's a war going on inside of me. But you know what? There's not just a war going on inside of me. There's a war going on all around me. In Ephesians 6, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a spiritual war going on, and he calls us to overcome that evil with good. Folks, we cannot engage in spiritual warfare utilizing anything other than the divine weapons of warfare. We may want to go to battle for the Lord. But if we're not going to battle using the weapons he has armed us with, we're going to get slaughtered. So what are those weapons? So if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10... Paul shares these weapons of warfare. Let's read 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 6. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, he's still talking about the flesh, right? We're walking in the flesh, we're fighting that battle in the flesh. He said, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Let's pause there for a second. We may be walking in the flesh, but when we wage war against evil, we better not do it according to fleshly desires and fleshly strategies. Things that we come up with where we say, oh, I think this is going to work. I'm going to win the battle but doing it this way. No. We need to abandon those thoughts that we might have. I mean, what does Proverbs 3 says? It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean into your own understandings. It's not what we think we need to do to win this battle, but we must do it away in the way that he says we should win this battle. So let me keep reading. Verse 4, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. To destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. You see folks, we see here in 2 Corinthians 10... <coughs> That the Lord's divine weapons for spiritual warfare can do a few things. Number one, it can destroy strongholds. 
It can destroy arguments. It can destroy every opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And it can capture every thought and make those thoughts obedient to Christ. That's what the divine weapons that God empowers us to fight this battle with can do. Why would we ever try to do spiritual battle in our own strength when we have the divine weapons and divine strategy to do that? So when it comes to fighting this war with evil, we must do so aggressively, violently, We must press the battle against the forces of evil until we win. We will overcome evil with good. But when we do so, we can't just use any strategy that we want to use. On the contrary, God's orders are very explicit. God's strategy calls for us to use weapons of righteousness. He says to overcome evil with good. The world's methods will not work. The world's strategy must be abandoned. When others do evil, that means you must do good. And once again, here in Romans chapter 12, we find a counterintuitive argument for how we ought to live our lives. When others do evil to you, you must repay them by doing good to them. So I wonder, are you in the battle to overcome evil in your life? If you're in the battle, if you're fighting this battle, what weapons are you using to fight these spiritual battles? And by the way, your willpower and your self-control do not have divine, the divine power of God behind them. Now, there is such thing as spirit-controlled living, but self-control and willpower will not cut it when we're trying to fight the battles of evil. We are soldiers in the army of the Lord. We are not generals in the army of the Lord. And so we need to follow his orders and we need to execute his battle plans and use the weapons that he provides and abandon all thoughts about how we want to go to war. God's plan for overcoming evils, like so many other things of God, as I said before, are counterintuitive. That's why he said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so notice these first two things when it comes to overcoming evil that we talked about verse 21 now let's notice these first two things in verses 14 and 15 the first of those is overcome evil by blessing others notice the that the focus of this verse is on the verbal response to persecution. You see, verbal communication has become the means by which so people have incurred the deepest hurts and alienation of all types of communication. 
The Christian must learn how to communicate with those who wrong him without hurting them back. It's vital that we're able to respond to verbal persecution because verbal and social persecution is what we encounter more here in the United States of America than, than anything else. Uh, we don't experience physical persecution here or political persecution nearly as much as what we do verbal or social persecution. So how can we overcome this evil of verbal and social persecution? Well, Paul's very clear. He says, overcome this evil by blessing others. And also notice this. Paul doesn't say if you're persecuted, did he? It is assumed that we are going to be persecuted for our faith. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Matthew 5, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then he says, Rejoice! And be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Folks, if you have never experienced any type of persecution for your faith, listen close here. If you've never experienced any type of persecution for your faith, you probably are not doing what Jesus said to do a few verses later in Matthew 5, 16. <clears throat> which says to let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. If you're not letting your light shine, you probably won't be persecuted. Jay Adams said, the more a Christian lives like Christ, the more he will suffer like Christ. So if we are being persecuted, the Bible says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So we've got to learn to respond with blessings instead of curses. And folks, that is going to require a radical change in the way that we live our lives. The response pattern of cursing is serious, sinful, and seems to be set in stone. You see... When we curse, what we're doing is invoking God's judgment on another person. Essentially, we become so angry about what that person has done that we, in our minds and sometimes in our words, proclaim that we would like for them to suffer the torments and punishments of e the eternal wrath of God. That's what a curse is that's your spirit and that's your attitude in the moment when you are wanting to retaliate when you're wanting to do to them as they have done to you we're cursing them james chapter 3 verses 8 through 10 it talks about the dangers that we face 
when it comes to this area of cursing. James says, no human being can, can tame the tongue. We cannot control our tongues. He goes on, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. We curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth, he says, come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. We should not curse. You may be here today thinking, okay, preacher, I hear what you're saying. I understand where you're coming from. And, and frankly, I recognize that my attitude toward people is not always what it ought to be. I hope that's kind of where you are right now. I recognize that my attitude toward people who mistreat me are not consistent with my Christian faith. But you may be sitting there and asking yourself the question, okay, I recognize it, but what am I supposed to do about it? How can I change? I'm so glad you asked, or I hope that you're asking. Because, folks, it's all about this idea of putting off and putting on that we find in Paul's letter to the churches in Colossae. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul writes, In these two, sorry, in these you two once walked when you were living in them. And he's talking about all of these bad things he had said earlier. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see, it's in that twofold call to discipleship that you have the essence of all life changes. You cannot stop cursing on your own. And you're probably thinking, yeah, that's true. You cannot stop feeling those feelings in your heart against someone who has done something so wrong against you. You cannot do it on your own. It's impossible. But instead, you must replace those cursings with something else. You see, sinful ways don't just disappear. Their habitual nature is too difficult to dislodge if you only replace it with a vacuum. If you just try to get rid of the sin, it won't go away. You have to replace the sin. It must be shoved out by new righteous ways that please God. You see, cursing that that inward thought or even that outward response. Cursing will cease only when blessing truly replaces it. And you know what? I think most of us as Christians today, 
if we've grown in our spirit and matured in our faith, most of us have gotten to the place where we are controlling what comes out of our mouth. But the question is, is what's in your heart? As someone mistreats you, or as Jesus put it, you know, when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely, what is going on in your head in those moments? Are you blessing that person in your heart? It's almost laughable to think about that as a possibility, isn't it? We might not curse them out loud, but we're probably cursing in our heart. The only way that cursing will cease is when blessings truly replace it. So what does it mean to bless someone? What does it look like to bless someone? Hold on, because this, I got to be honest, is possibly one of the most convicting things in my heart that I've preached in a long time, okay? Not, I mean, I, I'm constantly convicted by the things that God's showing me and asking me to share with you, but this one's tough. Because when it says that we should bless and not curse them, it means that we should ask God to do good things in the life of the person who is saying those things against us. We should ask God to save him from his sins. Or we should ask God to change his heart if he's a professing Christian. We should ask God to do good things in his life. We should ask God to show him mercy. No matter how that person treated you, blessing them is to ask God to be merciful to them. It's asking God to show compassion toward him. In all of these things, the emphasis is on the other person. Not on me, but on them. The one who persecuted me, the emphasis is on them. Not my feelings, not my hurt, not my pain, but God bless them, the ones who caused it. That is the way of love. That's genuine, authentic love. And that is the way to bless rather than curse. Now do you understand why I say we cannot do this without the divine weaponry that God provides? Because I got nothing in me to be able to make this happen. Nothing. Because, you know, uh, I absolutely am one who uh, wants to pray God to... Uh, you know, I think of James and John dealing with the Samaritans. Do you remember that story? When the Samaritans, they're passing through Samaria and the Samaritans are, are mocking them and saying bad things toward them. And, and what, is, what do James and John do? Well, they earned their nickname. Because they said, Jesus, call down 
fire from heaven and destroy these people. And so then Jesus started calling them the sons of thunder. You see, I, I resemble that sometimes. God, just pour out your wrath upon them for what they did. But that's not what God's calling us to do. He says to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So what do I have to do to experience this kind of transformation in my life? Well, folks, the answer is the same answer that I give you almost every week, it seems like. The answer is reading and obeying the word of God. That is our key to life change. There's a five-step process for this that we find in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And that is, to start out, we must have an expectant reading of God's word. We must read God's word with an expectancy in our heart that he's going to show us something special. And then, when he does, we have to have an awareness of what he's telling us. And then... When we are aware of what he's saying, then there must be a conviction of our sinful attitudes and behaviors. So it starts with reading, it moves to an awareness, and then to conviction. And when we feel that conviction of sinful attitudes and behaviors, we must confess those and repent of those so that we can experience correction. And then, as God's word corrects us, Praise God, it, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that it also trains us to live the right way. Trains us in righteousness. I'm going to hurry on past this because I'm running out of time this morning. But if you didn't get a chance to write those down, they're in the Version interactive notes um, for today's sermon. Or I can give it to you later. Let's move on to verse 15. Uh, verse 15, we see that we need to overcome evil by empathizing with others. If we go back to Romans chapter 12, it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. You see, empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another person. But it also means to think about their needs and become involved in their problems enough to do something about them. You see, verse 15 here is an illustration of the concept of empathy. To rejoice and weep with others means that you have developed empathy for them. And that empathy grows by allowing their concerns to overlap with your concerns. And sometimes even to supersede your concerns. You're more concerned about them and their issues than you are about your own. Isn't that what Paul told us about the attitude of Jesus in Philippians 2? He said, look more so at the needs of others. Have a mind of Christ that he, you know, even though he had every right to be Looked at as God, he made himself of no reputation. He, he had a humble attitude where he was putting the needs of others first. Now to weep with those who weep. 
is a powerful occurrence. Sometimes rare, but you know, honestly, it's not too terribly difficult to make that happen. For example, how many of you have been to a funeral visitation? You walk in and you see the grieving widow standing there a few feet away from the feet of her husband of 53 years. And your heart goes out to them. You empathize with them. You weep with them. Or even something a little less dramatic. When the prayer chain goes out and you receive a text like you did about an hour ago. When you receive that text and, and you find out that someone is hurting, someone's in the hospital, someone has had something happen. Our heart goes out to that person. We weep with those who are weeping. But have you ever noticed how people often find it more difficult to rejoice with others who are rejoicing? You would think that wouldn't be the case. You would think, well, it's easier to rejoice. Why is it that it's harder to rejoice with those who rejoice than it is to weep with those who weep? Well, I think envy and jealousy might have something to do with it. Because when someone's experiencing something great and wonderful, um, a lot of times we struggle with feelings of envy. Wondering why are they getting this blessing and I'm not. We've got to remember that empathizing with others when weeping and when rejoicing is commanded here. It's great that you can weep with others who weep. But I think we also need to rejoice with those who rejoice. We need to learn how to do both genuinely. Jesus taught on this topic in Luke chapter 15 when he shared three parables. The parables are the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And I don't want to spend a, a too terribly long time on this. If you're unfamiliar with these teachings, I encourage you to go to Luke chapter 15. Read those 32 verses for yourself this afternoon. But what you find in there are three parables about things that were lost. The first is a lost sheep. And what happens? He goes, he finds the sheep. Then what happens? They rejoice. The second parable is about a coin that is lost. The woman searches her house until she finally finds it. And what happens? They rejoice. Everyone, not just the woman, everyone rejoices. The final parable is the prodigal son. The father's son is lost. But through a series of events, he finds his way home. And so they rejoice. The father throws a party, kills the fattened calf, and um, they have a big time. And then what happens? The older son starts pouting. Folks, that's how a lot of Christians respond to the good news of others. 
they don't rejoice with them, they pout. They say, well, why didn't I get a party? Why didn't you do this for me, God? But folks, it's wrong. It's not what we need to do. You know, Paul often speaks of the church as a body made up of many members, but unified in their purpose and unified in Christ. And if one member of the body is rejoicing, then all members of the body should rejoice. And if one member of the body is weeping, then all should be affected. You know, I think about some examples of what this might look like. And, you know, as I was thinking about this yesterday, how can I, how can I illustrate this to you? The example that came to mind was, was winning a big game because Arkansas actually won something yesterday. When you win a big game, when, you, when you're excited about something, and I apologize if I spoiled that for anyone, if you hadn't watched the game yet, but you couldn't record it anyway because of how it was played, so there you go. Um, but when, when somebody wins, what happens? Well, first of all, for some reason, your hands go together, don't they? And you start hooping and hollering. Woo! And for some reason, Arkansas Razorback fans start calling the hogs. Um, which people all over the world make fun of us for that. But you know what? It's unique and it's distinct for us, so we'll stick with it. All of these things, our, our heart rate goes up. Our body temperature goes up. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of physical, emotional, mental responses that are happening. Why? Because we're rejoicing. And all the members, all the parts of our body rejoice together. But you know, the other side of that is the weeping. How many of you, while you've been working, you know, building something, have ever hit your thumb with your hammer? The only thing on my body that's hurting is right here. And yet my whole body is in tumult. Right? Why? Because my body is weeping with my thumb who is weeping. Folks, that's what we need to be as a church. We need to rejoice with those who rejoice. We need to weep with those who weep. And you know, when you find it as spontaneously easy to rejoice with others who rejoice, as freely as you weep with uh, those who weep, then you will know that you've learned to do what God requires of you in this verse. 
So three things that we've looked at this morning. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We'll talk more about that, but folks, the only power on earth that is strong enough to overcome evil is good. How do we do that? We bless those who persecute us. Bless them and do not curse. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. We empathize with others. Basically, we're considerate of others. How is God calling you to be considerate today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the amazing example that you give us in your word. And Father, we recognize our inability to to live according to the way that you have challenged us to live here. And so, Lord, we call upon your divine authority and the, the power that is at work in us through the Holy Spirit to help us to live the way that you would have us to live. And Lord, if there is a situation that people are, you know, an individual is dealing with here today where they're struggling to bless someone who is persecuting them, they're struggling to want what is good for that person, Father, I just pray that you would convict our hearts and that we would confess that sin to you today, Lord. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.